few years ago, I was teaching at this uh, Wednesday night Bible study that we used to have before we were uh, doing small groups, and uh, I thought it had gone really well that night. I mean, I thought it had gone really well. Uh, I mean, everybody laughed in the right places, which is always important. Um, you know, people were amazed by the insights. I mean, it was just, a, you know, a, a really, really good, challenged by what the point of the message was. And so afterwards, my wife comes up to me, and I'm thinking that she's going to tell me just how much she loved it, how great it was, and all that, and, the, you know, the seven or eight things that are just going to change her life and all that. And, uh, and so I, I came up to her, and she looked kind of, like, very intent to talk to me. And so I, I walked up, and or she walked up to me, and I said, hey, what's up? And she said, listen, I need to tell you something. And I said, yeah, what is it, you know, as I'm waiting. And she says, listen, uh, your fly is down. And I... Uh, and I said, so I quickly took care of it, and I said, now, um, if I can ask you one question, how long has this been going on? She says, well, the whole time you were teaching, until just now. And I said, uh, do you think anybody saw it? And she said, well, only the people that were here in church, I think, were the only ones that's, that, that's, that saw anything. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it was embarrassing to say the least. But listen, you ever, you ever have those things where you got to tell somebody something you don't want to tell them, but it's something that they need to hear? And that, that was one of those moments. And sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is say something to someone, even that thing they don't want to hear, because you know it's for the best. And, and so you say, well, how do you do that? And how do they not take it the wrong way? And, and the Bible has, says it this way. It says we've got to speak the truth in love. And you'll see that in, in your outline in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. And so, and, and the thing is this, is that nobody likes confrontation. That's why I think that passage is in there. It's because nobody likes confrontation. And if you do, you're like, oh, no, I love confrontation. Well, luckily, there's medication available. Um, but, you know, nobody likes confrontation, but sometimes if the confrontation is necessary, it's because we love the person and we see them going uh, in, in, in a wrong direction. And that's the reason why we confront is because we care. That's the story in the church that we're going to look at this morning. This story in this church is called Thyatira. This is the story of a church gone completely wild. The story of a church that's gone in some ways totally off the deep end, allowing false teachers into their midst. And now they didn't really want to confront because they thought it would be unloving to say something because it was uncomfortable for them to say, hey, what you're speaking is wrong, what you're sharing isn't right, what you're saying is maybe contrary to the scriptures. And this is the moment where Jesus now has to step in and he has to be the one to confront and he has to be the one to correct. And we started a series a few weeks ago. Uh, called It's the End of the World as We Know It. And we've been tracking verse by verse, trying to leave no stone unturned as we work our way through the book of Revelation. And now we're at the end of chapter 2, and we've been working through each of the seven letters written to the seven churches. And if you haven't been with us, or even if you have, let me give you a quick recap that we've said uh, from the beginning that there are four applications to the seven churches. There is what we call, our scholars call a near application, and that is that Jesus was writing to a particular church at a particular time. He was writing to the church at Ephesus at that time, the church at Smyrna at that time, the church at Pergamos at that time, and what we're going to look at today, the church at Thyatira at that time. I mean, there's a specific church. There's also a general application that refers to all churches. That's why Jesus says at the end of every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. The, the idea is, is that there's this, 
It's, God is speaking to a particular church, but it has application to every church. There's also what we call the prophetic application. And that is that each church chronologically speaks of a period in church history. And we've been following that. And then lastly, that there is a personal application and that each of these letters can speak to our lives personally. Well, I want to walk back a little bit, if I can, to this prophetic application. That each church speaks of a period in church history. And in your notes, we talked about how Ephesus was what we call the apostolic period. The time of the apostles and the disciples of the apostles that were just beginning these churches from 33 to 100 A.D. Smyrna was the persecuted church that was from 100 to 312 A.D. Pergamos was this church, and you learned about that church last week, that there was all of these kind of problems going on uh, from... 312 to about 606 A.D., this time when uh, Constantine made, the, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But then there's Thyatira, and if you fill in, that's your fill in, it's from 606 to 517 A.D. This is a period that we like to call the Dark Ages. And not only was it the Dark Ages um, culturally and sociologically, it was the Dark Ages in reference to the church as well. Now, the thing that's a little bit different about these last four churches, the, the ones that we're going to, the one we're going to cover today and the next three weeks, so Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, is that, is this. Each of them is going to have a period of time that's going to be their heyday. But all of these will continue on up until the tribulation period. You say, well, how do we know that? Because in this very letter that we're going to look at, here's what Jesus says to them. He says, it's in your nose, he says, hold fast what you have till I come. So that is, you're going to need to hold fast, you need to change these things until I get here because you're going to be continuing on as we look big picture perspective from a prophetic perspective, you're still going to be here until I get here. You know what that means? That means that this church, Thyatira, this type of church is still with us today. The church we're going to look at next week, Sardis, in a message that I call the Church of the Living Dead, is going to be here. Is going to be here. Uh, they're, they're still here with us, and all, the other churches are there, are there as well. But 606 to 517 is the heyday of this church in Thyatira, prophetically. And the thing that we've also mentioned, and I just want to give you a little bit of a recap, uh, especially for those of you that are maybe just joining us, is that the very name of the church speaks of the issue that Jesus is wanting to speak to them about. The name Ephesus means darling. Why? Because the issue that he said is you've left your first love. The, the church at Smyrna, the word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Myrrh is a fragrance that is released when it is pressed or crushed. And what was this church experiencing? All kinds of pressure from persecution. There was the, the church at Pergamos. Pergamos is a compound word. There's uh, per, which is where we, we use that as a, as a prefix in our day. We talk about someone who uh, perjures themselves in, cur- or in, in court or who perverts something. So uh, that word per means something that's objectionable. And then gamos uh, is, is a Greek term. We talk about monogamy. We talk about uh, this. What is, it, what is monogamy? Mono means one. Gammy means one person in, in marriage. So gammy, gamos means marriage. So it's an objectionable marriage. They were compromising by allowing pagan practices into the church services. And this is totally depicted, If you, you can research this if you want, but um, the, the thing that you see uh, throughout in, in, uh, that they've found is they, they've, it's so pictured in the, the coins from that era. 
and that Constantine and later on they had these coins printed that had Christian symbols on one side and pagan symbols on the other side, really showing just this union of that which is sacred and that which was profane. But then there's Thyatira, and Thyatira means, uh, is literally a term that means continual sacrifice, a continual sacrifice that was going on. And what was the problem? The problem in Thyatira is that, that Jesus wants to talk to them about is they didn't understand that the, wor- the real meaning of what Jesus did on the cross. Instead, what they believed that this, is that there was a continual sacrifice that needed to take place. And so because they didn't understand that Jesus' sacrifice was all that they needed for salvation, they wanted to create these other issues of continual sacrifice. And so what Jesus does is he has to explain now what he means by that. Why the work of Jesus is enough for a person to be saved, that it's not works that we've done, but instead it's a free gift that God gives to us. Uh, The book of Hebrews would say it this way, he sacrificed for their sins, once for all, not, continu- not a continual sacrifice, but once for all when he offered himself. Now, this is an important thing. And once again, we have to understand that in, in the church of Thyatira, in the city of Thyatira, there was um, a lot of gods that were worshipped. But the principal god that was worshipped was the, the Greek god Apollos. The Apollos was the sun god. By the way, it's no, when we get to this in just a second, there, there's no surprise that even while so many people were worshipping the sun god, Jesus, as he gives a title of himself, he says this, you know, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? This is, you know, the person saying this is the son of God, because that was the idea that Apollos was the son of Zeus. And so he was the son God because he was God's son. So Jesus stands up and he says, listen, I know when if if you come from that background of Apollos, that there's a continual sacrifice that needs to be made. But me being God's son, there's one sacrifice that was made, the sacrifice that I made, Jesus would say. And so I want you to understand why that's why that is. And so as he has to explain to them what it is that he's really done and what this created, this lack of understanding was total chaos in the church that they had gone from what happened at Pergamos of just kind of maybe flirting this objectionable type of commingling to just outright idolatry problems, immorality that had happened in the church. And I mean, it really was a church gone wild completely. And so what happens is that because of this, these misunderstandings, because of these problems, Jesus has to step in right to this church and speak to them concerning these problems that are going on. Now, this is really good for us because what we learn from these three things is how to confront someone. And so we're going to see kind of three sections of this letter. Even though Thyatira was the smallest city, it gets the most real estate in the scriptures. It gets the most amount of verses in, in the Bible of, of any of the seven churches. And so what Jesus does is that he speaks to them concerning this issue that they were compromising on, these problems that he needed to confront them on. And what we get, and this is what I love, is how to confront someone the way Jesus does. So let's start reading. This is in verse 18. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith and your patience and as for your works the last are more than the first if you pause there and give me your attention uh, what's the first thing that we see when it comes to confronting someone notice what jesus does And, and i think what we need to do is the same thing that jesus does when we confront someone and that is that i need to compliment with sincerity if you're going to share some heavy stuff with someone 
which is what Jesus does. Well, the first thing we need to do is if there's something good you can say about the person, then do it. You know, when, um, as I, I, I mentioned in the opening, when my wife talked to me about, you know, hey, guess what? You know, Superman's flying low. Um, this is the phrase I've been using for your zippers down since I was in like the second grade. Uh, I should probably grow up, but it's not likely. Um, but anyway, so when I, the first thing that my wife did was, and I, I, I embellished the story a little bit because she did come up and say that. But the first thing she did say to me was, hey, I want you to know the message was great tonight. By the way, your fly's down. Um, that, that was actually how, how it went. And, um, but, you know, she didn't just go straight for the correction, straight for the jugular. You know, what, instead what she did was she encouraged me sincerely, and then she confronted the issue that she needed to confront. Proverbs 15 would say it this way, and it's such a great passage. It's one that you should commit to memory. But that is that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And what you want to do when you're confronting someone is not stir up anger, but instead use this soft word to turn away wrath so that the person now is listening to the words that you're saying. I mean, let me just give you an example. Let's say that, um, you know, let's say you need to confront your husband about the fact that uh, he's not taking out the garbage. All right, let's maybe go with that. I know this is like total science fiction here. Um, but, uh, you know, he's not taking out the garbage because he's watching TV and so he just misses when the garbage comes all the time. So instead of starting the conversation like this, you know what your problem is? You know, and say, well, that's exactly like how I started one recently. You know, uh, don't start it like that. Do you know what your problem is? Instead, you might want to start it this way. Honey, do you know what I love about you? I love how passionate you are about what you're into. And I know you're very passionate about the Sesame Street program that you're watching right now. And um, because of that, but see, but because I know you're passionate about that, but here's what I also am hoping you'd be passionate about, is the fact that our house is beginning to smell like garbage. And maybe we can get, gain some insight from Oscar the Grouch and not want to live inside of a garbage can. Uh, and so we can just kind of move from that. Did you know... Uh, totally an aside, that um, Sesame Street is doing budget cuts. You hear about that? That's crazy. Yeah. Elmo's leaving. He's going to join the cast of Desperate Housewives. It's weird. He just said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go where I'm wanted. You know, actually, he doesn't say I'm. He says, Elmo is out of here. Elmo's going where he wanted because he always speaks in the third person, much like Bob Dole. Anyway, uh, has nothing to do with anything, but I just figured I'd tell you that. Uh, but Jesus begins, here's how he begins. Jesus begins by commending what it is that they're doing. He says, I'm commending you for your faith, for your love, for your works, for your service, for your patience. This church had a lot going for it. And now as we look prophetically, and, and I mentioned in the opening, you say, well, you said this church is still around today. What, what church are we talking about? Scholars almost universally agree that the church that's being referred to here uh, is the Roman Catholic Church. And you say, well, how do we know? One of the ways that we know is what he says. He says that the last works are more than the first. See, a lot of times what we don't realize is that the, the, the church that was, this, this church in its heyday, 606 to 517, by the way, at that time, there was only one church. It wasn't like now there's all these denominations and all that. There's just one church. And then it was around 1100 that the Eastern Orthodox group left, and then uh, around, you know, 1400s, 1500s, the Protestants protested, which is where we get our name, and they decided to go, and so the church kind of got um, divided into these three main groups. Uh, but what happens is this, is that this, this church that's there, which now is uh, still the main thrust, is, is the Catholic church. One of the ways that we know is when he says your, your works, your latter works are more than your first. 
The Greeks and the Romans did not believe in uh, the idea of helping those who were sick, helping those who were less fortunate. In fact, they believed that if you were sick, it's because the gods had cursed you. And so that was that. So there's no reason to help someone whom the gods have cursed. I mean, because now you're putting yourself in opposition to the gods. Well, the church came along and said, you know what, we're, we're not going to do that. You know, and, and the Catholic Church were the first to institute hospitals. That's why, you know, it's usually Saint so-and-so uh, uh, for, for the hospitals, because um, they were the first ones to institute the idea uh, to, to, to create hospitals. Uh, the Catholic Church were the first ones to develop orphanages. Think about this. That in that day and age, if you were, if your parents died and you were orphaned, usually you were sold into slavery. If you were a girl, you were sold into prostitution. The church looked on and said, that is completely unacceptable. And so they created these hospitals, they created these orphanages, so that this wouldn't happen. And so... What Jesus does is that he, he's got to correct them because there's some problems in the church. Now, I'm going to say some things that are going to be fairly heavy. And if you say, man, that's kind of rough, I come back next week, we're going to hit the Protestants even harder, So just to kind of balance everybody out. So we're equal opportunity offenders here. If you hang around long enough, everybody will get offended, uh, even me. And, uh, but he begins, to, he begins to correct them, but he commends them beforehand. So if you have the opportunity, commend what somebody's doing right before you go in and start telling them what they're doing wrong. Now, he commends them for their love, their faith, their patience, their service, all of this. But then he's got to now correct them. And that's what we see in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I'll cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to his works. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, see, it kind of starts out light, it starts out fun, and then it gets real, real heavy, real, real quick. Because um, if the first thing is we complement with sincerity, the second thing is, is that if we're going to confront, we have to confront with specifics. We confront with specifics. Um, and that's just the way it works. You, know, you can't say to someone, you say, you know, just the things that you do bother me. So what is that? Well, like what? I don't know. Just Everything. No, if you're going to confront someone, confront them with very specific things. Listen, there's some things you've done that have hurt me. This, this, and this. Can we talk about those things? And see, now that begins to change, change what it is that, that's going on. Now, here's what was happening at this church. At this church, they wanted to kind of dance on the line. You know, there's this line between what's sacred and what's sinful, and they were trying to find the gray area and get to the place where maybe they just wouldn't fall over the line. Well, Several years ago, it was probably about, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, um, I went to the Grand Canyon. Everybody been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah. All right. Seven of us. That's great. Um, anyway, you should go there, uh, being one of the wonders of the world and all. And uh, so I went there, and I was, you know what I was really amazed by more than anything? You said, oh, the majestic view of God's creation. No, I was amazed by how close to the edge they let you stand. Um, and then... Not only that, it's like this, and if you've been there, you know, it's like this flimsy little rail that's like keeping you from certain death. And I'm thinking, like, I, shouldn't they have like a cage or something that kind of keeps this, keeps, anyway. Um, but I'm telling you, I was very concerned by this, like, 
flimsy little rail that I'm telling you, you could hit that thing with like half a burger and it would probably fall over. And, uh, so, I mean, and so, so the part that concerned me about going to the Grand Canyon was, number one, I hate heights. And so, you know, kind of like looking over, that kind of, was kind of weird. The other thing is, when I found out that people actually fall in on a semi-regular basis. Now, all right, let me read this to you. This is from, I, I, you, you say, I just tend to read things. But this is from uh, the Frommer's Complete Guide to the Grand Canyon. And so you can go to Barnes & Noble if you want, read this. This is what it says. Every year, a handful of people fall to their death in the canyon. To minimize risk, don't blaze trails along the rim. That's a good advice. Where loose rocks make footing precarious, use caution when taking photographs and when looking through the viewfinder in your camcorder, unless, of course, you want your final footage to wind up on the Fox network. That's the advice they give you. So my thing is, you know, I was in uh, Arizona last year. My advice, let's just go somewhere else, you know, and I'll just check pictures out or something. Uh, but the idea is this. Here's what they're saying. If you try to dance real close to the edge, you're probably going to fall off. If you're not really, if you're not being careful, instead of trying to dance on the edge, why don't you stand back a little bit where it's a little safer and you can still view everything. You see, the same thing happens in our relationship with God. The same thing happens when it comes to sin. So many times that we want to do is we want to dance real close to the edge. And if I, it doesn't matter. See, I'm here and I'm still standing and I can even lean over a little bit and it's okay. And what we'll do is, is that we'll, we'll get close to the edge, close to the edge, close to the edge, close to the edge. Eventually we'll fall in and then we'll say, oh Lord, I fell into sin. I don't know what happened. Now you've heard me say this if you've been around for a while, that we don't actually fall into sin. We walk into sin one step at a time. In fact, this is how uh, James would put it. He said, but each one is tempted when, by his own desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. What Jesus is saying is exactly the same thing when it comes to this church. That this church was mixing pagan practices with the worship of God. They were trying to dance on the line, and what, was, what they were finding was they were falling over the line, and that what they were experiencing was all kinds of problems because falling over the line ended up in immorality and ended up in idolatry. And I'm telling you, it can happen just as easily in your life and, or in mine if we decide that we're going to dance uh, on this line. I mean, it's just as simple as, you know, it's this whole idea where he says it's like this Jezebel kind of spirit, so to speak, that just permeates things. And we just kind of think like, oh, you know, I can just kind of I can hang out in the club and have a couple drinks, right? Because, I mean, I'm not doing anything like totally immoral because I can just kind of dance right on that line and, and nothing, will, nothing will take place. I mean, it's not totally illegal. By the way, if that's a sentence that you think like it's not totally illegal, you see, it's either legal or not legal. That's like being kind of pregnant. You know what I mean? You either are or you aren't, you know. And so we have this thing where it's like, well, I just, you know, no. Why don't you step back from the line a little bit? Instead, what takes place is there's all these problems. Why? Because we just dance on the line. Well, you know, I only come here because of my friends. Oh, I only was there because it was what was happening at work. And, you know, come on, I don't want to seem like a weirdo by not going or by not being involved or by not taking part. You know, that was the very same thing the church of Thyatira was saying. You see, like I mentioned earlier, they had all these other gods. And with all these other gods, here's what they were doing. There were all of these guilds 
kind of like unions now, but they had all these union-like guilds that were um, for each trade, and each trade had its, had its own god. And what they would do is they would worship at the temple of Apollos. They would worship each of these gods in, in hopes that God, the gods would bless their particular trade and their particular business. So if you didn't pay homage, pay your dues, so to speak, of going to the temple, the gods weren't going to bless the whole group. So you were kicked out of, of, of being involved in that trade and that occupation simply because you weren't going to play ball with worship, worshiping that god. So what happens? They say, well, we can just maybe introduce a little bit of this into the church. We can introduce a little bit of this into our lives. And what took place? They start dancing on the line. Eventually, they start falling over the line. And what became, well, maybe we'll just bow down to the statue a little bit. Maybe we'll just get involved in this a little bit. Maybe we'll just put a hint of incense. Maybe we'll just light a candle. Maybe we'll just do this. Became full-blown idolatry in their lives. And they were walking away from what it really meant to be a Christian. You see, 2 Corinthians 6 says this. He says, you are not the same as as those who do not believe. So do not join yourselves to them. Good and bad do not belong together. Light and darkness cannot uh, share together. How can Christ and Belial, the devil, have an agreement? What can a believer have together with a non-believer? The temple of God cannot have an agreement with idols, and we are the temple of the living God. And see, what Satan does is that he uses these schemes to get us all tangled up into this, because here's what the devil understands, is that there is nothing more ineffective than a compromised Christian life. Because nobody's going to listen to someone who's a Christian talking about what Jesus wants for them, for for some other person, when they themselves are living in total compromise. And so we talked about this idea, Jesus talks about this idea of Jezebel. Well, who is Jezebel? Now, this wasn't an actual person in the church. But this, what Jesus is saying is you allow that person Jezebel, that woman Jezebel, what he's talking about is he's relating it to this person named Jezebel, one of the most famous women, or maybe I should say infamous women, in uh, the Old Testament. And this, this woman Jezebel is probably one of the most evil people in the entire Bible. Um, her dad, his name was S. Baal, uh, who was a uh, priest of this false god named Ashtoreth. We have a picture of Ashtoreth here. Um, this was, she was the uh, goddess of fertility, and you can probably tell why, um, as you see her statue there. Um, if we could get rid of the idols. Uh, you know, but she, her dad is, is the priest of, of uh, Ashtoreth, and she decides, she marries this guy named Ahab, who is the king of Israel at this time. Now, uh, this was a pair, you know, I mean, this is quite a pair. Uh, you ever seen Beauty and the Beast? This was like Beauty is the Beast, all right? Because this woman was rough. Um, now, her husband, on the other hand, was like a complete and utter wimp. I mean, if you just like, oh, what's like a real wimpy guy? Read the story of Ahab. I mean, there's one story where he wants this field, and he, he, he asks the guy to sell it. The guy says no, and he goes into his room and cries. What does Jezebel do? She says, honey, if you want it, it's okay. She has the owner of the field killed. I mean, this is kind of like the kind of person that we're dealing with here. She's, you know, I mean, she's kind of like the godfather, like the godmother, all right? She's she's nuts. Um, And so, now, check out what happens. He marries this woman, and look at what's introduced. Uh, This is in your outline in 1 Kings 16. It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those before him. That is, any of the other kings of Israel. Not only, he not only considered it trivial 
to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was a king before him. He also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal and a temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Now, we have a picture of Baal here. Uh, he kind of looks like one of the cone heads. Um, now, I actually saw um, most of the uh, things that they found, these archaeological digs, have found all of these little Baal idols. They're about that big, like the size of an action figure. And uh, I have several pictures of them that when we were at the Israeli Museum, you say, well, aren't you not supposed to take pictures inside a museum? Yes. Anyway, I have several pictures inside the Israeli Museum. Uh, let's not talk about that. Um, the authorities are outside. And, and here's what happens, is that um, all, most of them, I, I, when I expected to have, like, like, oh, you know, they have the statues of Baal, I expected, like, this Statue of Liberty size statue. And there are all these little trinkets, which are all these little things that people put in their homes and people put in their cars and people put in all of these different little places uh, because they wanted God uh, to bless them. Now, Baal in, in that culture was the god of rain, thunder, agriculture. Um, you'll see that he's kind of like this. That's because it broke off. One of the pictures that I have is him. He's holding a lightning bolt, and that's one of the... Um, uh, the, the, the pictures that, that we have of him. If you've seen a picture of Zeus in Greek mythology holding a lightning bolt, very simpler, similar to that. And so um, the idea was that you worshipped him, um, and that's why he was so popular in that, in that culture in the Middle East, is because when you have a culture whose sustenance comes from the ground and comes from an agrarian type of society, they're, they're going to be drawn towards that if they think, if I pray to Baal, sacrifice to Baal, he's going to bless my crops, bless my family, and all of that. Now, here's what happens. They begin to move into this area of false worship. And here's what takes place. They move into this area of false worship. And what is the end result? Oh, it's only a generation or two later that you know what happens? All of Israel is carried away and conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. About a little over 115 years, 116 years later, in, in 606 B.C., Babylon carries away the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, there was 12 tribes of Israel. Eventually, they broke apart. You know, musical differences. They broke up. Uh, sorry. Uh, they, they, they broke up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel gets wiped out in 722. and 606, uh, the Babylonians come in. They end up totally wiping out Israel, uh, the southern kingdom in 586. And the question is, Why? Well, in 2 Kings 17, God tells us the reason why. Here's what he says. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that what? The kings of Israel had introduced. You see how, you see how it began? It just began with, can we just have this little trinket? Can we just have this little bit? Can we just have this little part? And you know what ended up taking place? They just started dancing closer and closer to the line, and eventually they found themselves in full-blown immorality, full-blown idolatry, now getting carried away, wondering, well, I don't even know what happened. And that's what happens with this whole Jezebel introducing things into the church that, that now are corrupting it. She introduces the worship of idols and statues, which is totally contrary to the worship of God. Here's what, here's what God says, and this is Exodus, this is like one of the top ten, right? You know, this is one of God's top ten. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image 
any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And that's one of the things that when Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church, that was one of the big issues was, why are we worshiping statues? Why aren't we simply worshiping God? That was one of the things that took place. The, the other big issue that uh, the, the um, Protestants broke away when they wanted to break away and protest uh, was, was because there was the understanding that why aren't people allowed to have a copy of the Word of God? Why can't they, they read the Bible? The understanding was, uh, and this was, the, this was the common teaching in the church at that time, is that people just aren't smart enough to understand the Bible. Well, part of it is that you're speaking it in a language they don't understand, and that was part of what happened when Gutenberg invented the printing press, is that the Bible started getting copied, and, and it was, now it was very easy to, for people to get copies of the Bible. But then the other thing was over what's called transubstantiation. Now, that's a big word. What, what does that mean? Transubstantiation is... Um, a particularly Catholic belief, that is, that when the priest prays over the communion elements, we had communion last week, prays over the bread and the cup, that that actually literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, that's why, and the idea is, is that every time that a Mass is performed, every time that the, the, the prayer is prayed over the elements, Jesus is being sacrificed again. Once again, what's Thyatira's name? Continual sacrifice. And that's the very issue that's taking place, that the sacrifice of Jesus isn't quite enough. You see, when we celebrate communion, we're remembering. Jesus said, do this in re- as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. But the work is already done. The price has already been, been paid. And that's the thing that, that, that happens. And so and the idea is this. Once again, the, the, the official doctrine um, of of the, the Catholic Church at that time. And I tell you this, I mean, this is not like an easy message and all that. I know many of us come from that background. I come from that background. Um, many of my family still are uh, part of that, that church. And, uh, you know, I went to parochial school. I mean, I did, you know, I was baptized as a baby, did First Communion, did First Penance. I did all that stuff. But what I'm sharing with you is simply what the Bible teaches concerning some of these practices that the Bible would call part of that Jezebel introduction of things that really have nothing to do with our real relationship with God. You see, part of that doctrine of transubstantiation is that you begin, as you continually are part of the Mass and take in these these transubstantiated elements, that's how you earn going to heaven. That you now begin to, and this is the official term, you merit salvation through your participation in the sacraments. Which what the Bible teaches is this, that we are saved by faith through grace. That it's, it's the grace of God that saves us through our faith in what Jesus has done. It's not a continual sacrifice. When Jesus was dying on the cross, here's what he said. It's in your outline. Three words. He said, it is finished not to be continued he said it is finished it's a done deal uh in john chapter 6 i put this in your notes they said uh they said to jesus what shall we do that we may work the works of god and here's what he says he says that you may believe this is the work of god that you believe in the one whom he has sent that is that is our faith in christ there's no continual sacrifice necessary it's a finished work now, here's what you might think. Man, that is a hard confrontation to this church. For some of us, that's a hard confrontation to us. You say, man, can't, can't we soften the blow a little bit? Now, listen. When I was in California, I was in California last week, um, and uh, my, my daughter, we were leaving the hotel, and we are walking out to our car. And then uh, to walk out to our car, you've got to walk through where all like, the valet cars are pulling up. 
And so my daughter kind of starts running out to where all the valet cars are. Now, I, what I could have done is just kind of gotten down on my knee and said, Mia, come over here, sweetheart. Anytime you get a chance, come on. Or I could have just said, Mia, stop now and grabbed her. You say, wow, that seems a little harsh. I'd rather be harsh and her be alive uh, than, than not be harsh and, and not be very confrontational in what she's doing and risk something terrible taking place. Jesus shows up and he says, here's the deal. I've got to be hard, but listen, this is what's so important. You've got to be complimentary, if you can, with sincerity. You've got to confront with the specifics of what's taking place. But then, lastly, you need to challenge with the Scriptures, and that's what Jesus does in verse 24. He says this, Now I say to you and the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as, I will, as they say, I will put no, on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And this is a quote from Psalm 2. He says, he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The last thing, as I mentioned, we challenge with Scripture. I still remember when I was 20, I, moved, I got my own apartment. Or 21, I got my own apartment. It was like a great decision for me. It helped me so much in my life because uh, I had to learn how to do basic things, like learn how to use a vacuum cleaner, which I hadn't ever used before. Uh, I learned how to use a dishwasher. Um, and then I also learned how to use a washing machine because I had never washed clothes in my life. I would just throw them on the floor, and then through just a miraculous work, a few couple days later, they would show up washed, folded, and on my bed. I never really understood. So when I moved into my own apartment, I just did what I always did. Uh, you know, you change your clothes, you throw them on the floor, and then, like, after a couple of weeks, I ran out of clothes to wear. And I'm like, what happened? Why aren't they all appearing again like they're supposed to? Where's the downy fairy or something that's supposed to come and clean this stuff up? Well, I found out that apparently it was my mom that was doing all of this. I was totally shocked. And uh, so here's what takes place. What takes place is, is that I call Carrie. We were dating at the time. I call her on the phone and I said, listen, I have a problem. And she says, what? I said, I need you to come over and do some laundry for me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. And I said, I said, I don't know how to use a dishwasher. I mean, I had to use a laundry machine. And so I'm like, what do all of these buttons mean? What is permanent press? If I put it on permanent press, does that mean it's permanently washed? And so I was kind of doing this whole thing. And so she says, well, she explains to me how to use it. Well, she kind of assumed a couple things that I knew. I knew nothing. So once she told me, well, you've got to pull the thing out, you've got to put in the detergent, you know, because I bought the real cheap stuff, uh, you know, the stuff that's like you can buy like 800 washes for like 75 cents. So I just kind of threw this real cheap stuff in, the powder, put in the powder. And now what I didn't know is I didn't know anything about like, um, oh, you know, you've got to separate. Separate? What does that mean? So my thing of separate was like I'm just going to separate like the clean from the dirty or guys. Uh, as most guys do, which they won't admit, the clean, the dirty, and then the, eh, I could probably wear it again. Uh, that, so I kind of separated all of that. Now, guys will not admit this in public, but uh, 
I still do it too. Anyway, um, we all do it. So then, so I just threw everything in. You know what I found? There's something that happens when you put whites, darks, browns, blues, reds, you know, any other color, stripes together, and you just kind of let them all mingle in there. They all come out pink. I'm serious. And I got my clothes out and I put them, I got them out of the wash. I'm like, wow, it's all pink. That must be the wa- that must be the detergent. I put them all in the dryer. No, I had all pink clothes. And I mean, it was rough. I still wore them, but it was rough. Um, I mean, and, and the thing is this, the problem was I started mixing things that never should have been mixed. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're mixing things that never should be mixed. You're mixing Jesus with idolatry. You're mixing the worship of God with, with idolatry. You're mixing what should be holiness with immorality. And that becomes the problem. And that's why Jesus takes the time to confront them with the Scriptures. And, but yet he gives them the, a promise. He says this, to him who overcomes... And that's one of the promises that we see throughout all these churches. He always, he, he commends them, he corrects them, but then he gives them the promise. He says this, to, he gives them the over, what, we, what scholars call the overcomer verse. He says this, to him who overcomes, but to this church, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give him the morning star. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus explains what that means. At the end of Revelation in uh, chapter 22, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. What is Jesus saying? To him who overcomes, I'll give him the morning star. He says, I will give you me. Jesus says, I will give you myself if you overcome all of this idolatry, all this immorality. Because idolatry does something. Immorality does something. It puts something between me and God that never should be between you and I and God. And the question is this, have we put something between us and God? Because if we have, then friends, it's time to either let go of that or at least recognize that it's there and then say, God, I've got to get rid of this because this is, I'm actually worshiping this and not you. I'm telling you, some people put a relationship between them and God. It's like they're in this relationship and it's like, well, I could really go for it with God, but it's really comfortable. Or, you know, but just, they might not be a Christian, but they're really cute. And I can, they can always become a Christian. They can't, sometimes Christians aren't cute and you're not going to become cute. And so maybe that, that's part of the, the problem that's there. For some people, it's, it's a job, it's a career. And they put that before God. And they realize that now with things being uncertain, life is in shambles because we find out that we've been trusting in a God that's not really God. For some people, it's money, that that's the thing that they trust in. That becomes their God. That's the thing they put between them and God. For some people, it's simply pride, which is just the worship of self. Listen, whatever the case is, maybe now is the time to heed the words of Jesus and let go of these other gods that we've been worshiping, if we have been worshiping them. For what purpose? That we might really know the true and the living God. And maybe that's, that's where you are today. And you say, you know... Um, I've been worshiping another God. I've been saying that I've been worshiping God, but it's really just been an idol. That maybe now is the moment that you say, maybe today is the day that I've just got to kind of let go of that and really recommit myself to worshiping the one true and living God. 
And if that's you, maybe a prayer prayed in sincerity saying, God, I'm letting this go and I'm going to walk with you. A a prayer prayed in sincerity like that is one that God will answer. Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you for these words. And as hard as they've been at times to hear, we recognize that it's done out of love. That we don't want to speak the truth in harshness, but instead we want to speak the truth in love. And so, Lord, we pray that we might receive the words that you said. That if there's a correction that needs to be made, if there's repentance that needs to happen, that it would. In Jesus' name, amen.